Charles here. Welcome to episode 102 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Sure, 100 episodes is an achievement, and 101 episodes is great. But this episode, episode 102, this is a special episode. Today, I turn over the podcast to the 2021-2022 TBR Podcast Fellow, Michael J. Benjamin, a PhD student at the University of Louisville, for the TBR Podcast Fellowship interview featuring Michael and Dr. Beverly J. Moss, Associate Professor of English at Ohio State University. Something I've been curious about all semester, and because you've alluded to it quite a bit, is how has your upbringing influenced your work? I think I knew that I didn't want to get a graduate degree in literature. I knew that I was interested in language, the way language works, uh, and the relationship between language and the way we talk about people's use of language. You'll hear more from Michael's interview with Beverly in a bit. But first, I want to share with you all the call for the Four C's Wikipedia Graduate Fellowship Program. From the call, quote, Are you interested in digital activism, knowledge equity, and public rhetorics? Make a real difference in public access to knowledge and explore your own research interests through the 4C's Wikipedia Graduate Fellowship Program. Applications are due Monday, May 30th, 2022. And the fellowship period is from July 2022 to June 2023. There is a time commitment, approximately 10 hours a week from July through August, and then five hours a week from September through June. And there's an award, $1,500. The Conference on College Composition and Communication Wikipedia Initiative is accepting applications for the 2022-23 Four Seas Wikipedia Graduate Fellowship Program. Graduate students in writing studies and closely related fields are invited to apply. The fellowship is aimed at emerging scholars who are invested in digital activism and knowledge equity and interested in hands-on experience with Wikipedia, Wikidata, and the digital public humanities. Established in 2019, the Four Seas Wikipedia Initiative proceeds from the conviction that public scholarship and knowledge equity on Wikipedia serve as fundamental groundwork for social justice. We are developing skills, cultivating inclusive community, and building structures of support and recognition for scholars of writing, rhetoric, literacy, and language studies who want to engage with Wikipedia as a form of global public scholarship. 2022-23 4Cs Wikipedia Graduate Fellows will each receive a $1,500 award in recognition of their one-year appointment to advance and expand the work of the Cs Wikipedia Initiative. 
Reminder, applications are due Monday, May 30th, 2022. For more information, including information on what graduate fellows do, who should apply, and a timeline for this project, visit the 4Cs website and search Wikipedia Graduate Fellowship. If you have any questions or concerns about the application process, please email Savannah Cragen, the 4Cs Wikipedian in residence at Savannah Cragen, that's Savannah, S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H-C-R-A-G-I-N at berkeley.edu. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Fellowship Program promotes the work of graduate students on the podcast, particularly through the Emerging Scholars series and through paid opportunities. The fellow assists in various aspects of running the podcast, including helping with two social media initiatives and with production, including booking and interviewing for their own episode. As you all know, our inaugural fellow is Michael J. Benjamin, a PhD student at the University of Louisville. Michael earned an MA in English at St. John's University, where he served as a graduate assistant in the University Writing Center. He has also taught English in Slovakia as a Fulbright Fellow and taught first-year composition at multiple universities across New York. His current research interests include writing center studies, critical pedagogy, popular culture, and literacy. Today, Michael interviews Dr. Beverly J. Moss. Dr. Beverly J. Moss is an associate professor of English at The Ohio State University, where she specializes in composition and literacy studies. Dr. Moss is the 2021 Four C's Exemplar, an award given to, quote, a person whose years of service as an exemplar for our organization represents the highest ideals of scholarship, teaching, and service to the entire profession, end quote. Dr. Moss's scholarly interests include examining literacy in African-American community spaces, composition theory and pedagogy and writing series center theory and practice. Dr. Moss has served on the editorial boards of the College Composition and Communication Journal and the Studies in Writing and Rhetoric book series. She is currently writing a book on the literacy practices of Phenomenal Women Incorporated, an African-American women's service and social club. Dr. Moss is also the 2022 Watson Conference Visiting Scholar. Here it is then, our very first TBR podcast fellow interview featuring Michael J. Benjamin and Dr. Beverly Moss. I hope you enjoy the interview. So, who are you? What's your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? Who are you and what do you do? I'm Beverly Moss, and I'm an associate professor of English and uh, at the Ohio State University in the Rhetoric, Composition, and Literacy Studies program. Uh, I am I'm a faculty member there. I teach. I do administrative work. I mentor graduate students. I do research. I do a little bit of everything. Sounds like a bit of everything. 
but where are you currently? This semester, I am the Thomas R. Watson Visiting Professor at the University of Louisville in the Department of English. Ooh, it's been a pleasure working with you for the record. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you. It's been a, it, you know, it's been a really nice semester here. It's, it's been nice to have a different perspective and work with um, a, a really a different, in a different program, different emphasis, different group of students. So it's very nice. What is the difference in your eyes? Like the big one. Well, one of the, the things, of course, that's the, the obvious one is that the graduate program in, at Louisville is the rhetoric and composition program, right? Uh, whereas at, a, at Ohio State, you know, it's a, um, a more comprehensive graduate program, um, literature, folklore, rhetoric, composition, and literacy studies, uh, separate MFA in creative writing, so just so, I mean, you know, and it's a bigger department. So It does sound like a lot bigger yeah. than here, but awesome. So where are you from originally? Because you're not from Ohio or. I am not from Ohio. When people ask me, where, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from North Carolina. I actually was born in, in just across the state line in South Carolina, but moved to Charlotte when I was five years old. And it's where I grew up. Uh, so I do say, yes, I, I am a Southerner. Um, I went to college in Atlanta at Spelman. So I didn't, I did not move across the Mason Dixon line until I was going to my master's program and haven't, of course, have not moved back below the Mason Dixon line since then. That was a long time ago. Do you miss it being below the Mason Dixon? Um, I like sunshine and warm weather. You know, no matter how long I've lived in person in what in, in Pittsburgh or Chicago or Columbus, Ohio, I don't like cold weather. I don't. I think snow is that stuff you should look at, but not have to deal with. You know, uh, I don't like ice. Um, so yeah, I, I do miss. Uh, I miss that. You know, my family's there. I mean, I don't have. I don't have any family in. Um, Columbus in the, in the area. I have some distant relatives in another, in Canton, Ohio, but um, you know, my mom is in Charlotte. My cousins are in, some are in Charlotte or in the, in the South Carolina town where I was born and where my, my, my mother was raised and my, my parents were raised. My, you know, my dad is deceased, but, but yeah, it's, um, I am very aware when they tell me about the the 4th of July barbecue with, with the families or the uh, Mother's Day cookout or the Father's Day cookout. I mean, my, my, my extended family has like, they have like a gathering for everything. The only one I usually get to do is Christmas. And um, of course, because of COVID, we haven't done that in a big way in the past couple of years. My mother you know, comes to visit me for Thanksgiving. And my parents, uh, once I moved to Columbus, started coming to visit me how often do you go back probably twice a year do you go for the barbecue and for the cookout i go christmas and i usually go either depending on whether four if four seasons during spring break i don't get to go during spring break so I'll, i will go um at the end of the term end of second semester and if seasons not in spring break then i'll go for spring break Awesome. Something I've been curious about 
all semester and because you've alluded to it quite a bit is how has your upbringing influenced your work? Well, that's an interesting question. I, um, I think it's, probably, it's had a major influence. I mean, my, I'm very much influenced by uh, what I later came to understand were the kind of literacy practices that I grew up in, that I, that I witnessed when I was a, uh, a child, that I uh, probably participated in. I mean, you know, the, the church on the cover of the book I wrote on literacy in African American churches. That is the church I grew up in as a child. In it's a church in a rural South Carolina town. We drove from Charlotte every Sunday, like thirty miles to that church. That's the church my um, mother's side of the family grew up in. My dad side went to a, a different church, same minister in same small rural area. The minister. Uh, had three different, three churches, three tiny little churches in this rural area. That's sort of the way that they do it in rural Methodist areas in the South. So um, I was very much influenced by my, my, my literacy surroundings and literate life in, 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 the, in the South, particularly in, that, in Charlotte and in the, my mother's literacy lives, uh, my family and those who lived in the rural town really cool that's really cool so i'm curious about you did your undergrad at spelman i did so we could talk about your time in all these metropolitan areas but i also want to know about your degree says literature on it although we've talked about the fact that that was just how things had to be how did you get drawn to it in the classroom? Like, was there a defining moment in your educational settings that led you towards this work? So, um, I mean, I, I got an English degree at Spelman and, you know, like most small liberal arts colleges, it was primarily literature. I mean, that's, that's what they, they do. But the, my introduction to rhetoric and composition came at Spelman because my composition, my advanced, my first year writing professor and my advanced composition professor was Jacqueline Jones Royster. Yeah, she was a professor. Queen herself. Yeah, she was professor at Spelman and I met her when I was 17 years old. I was in uh, a summer program, a pre, pre, like a pre-freshman summer program and she taught the first year writing class. So when I took advanced comp from her, and then I started to learn more from her about composition, that there was this discipline out there called composition. I didn't know I was going to go to graduate school, at, you know, that early on. But you know, once you know, I was an Eng I became an English major pretty early, and I think I knew that I didn't want to get a graduate degree in literature. I knew that I was interested in language and the way language works. Uh, and the relationship between language and when we talk about people's use of language. I didn't know anything about composition until I really started to understand who she was. And I, I tell people this all the time. I didn't understand who Jackie Royster was until I was in graduate school. And I went, oh, wow, that's who, that's who she is. Funny how that happens, right? 
That's, I did not know that. Was that your first semester? Well, in the summer before my first semester, she was my uh, first year writing and, uh, professor. And then in my first semester, I took advanced comp and she was the professor of the advanced comp class. So I was a freshman in the advanced comp class, which was interesting because I don't know that there were any other, any other first year students in that class. Did choosing to study English ruffle feathers at all at home? No. I mean, I think my, my parents thought, oh, you'll do business. And especially my dad thought that. But no, not really. I mean, because, you know, my mother got an associate of arts degree in secretarial science. It was just, um, so she was for a while a secretary before she started to, she got a job working at a bank at what was North Carolina National Bank that multiple iterations is now Bank of America. And um, I think they were just proud that I was in college because not that many people in my family had gone to college. I mean, my dad's younger sister went to college and was a teacher in New Jersey. Uh, but on my mom's side, um, not that many people were had gone to a four-year college. You know, went gone away to a four-year college and you know that was it was sort of the thing that I knew I wanted to do when I was a kid and my mother understood that and so we all she wanted me to do that and my dad was like okay you know so it was kind of this is what's going to happen it was trending that way pretty early um I think they thought oh maybe she'll major in business or maybe she'll do this but I don't think they really had a um or preference, I don't think they really knew much about what it meant to be an English major. And I, certainly the thought of going to graduate school was completely new. <laughs> uh, so. so, yeah, so let's move on to graduate school then. Yeah. So you go to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Yes. Which Remember feels like that. a stark contrast. It was. Tell me about it, please. It, it, it really was. I remember walking to campus from my apartment and um, I thought, no, like, this is a different world. I had never lived, talking about living above the Mason-Dixon line. I mean, there were these, like, the personal things. Like, the first time I ever drove in snow was, was there. I thought, what am I doing? I didn't know how to drive in snow. Um, and it was really uh, immersion on some level into rhetoric. I mean, I had um, Richard Young, Rich. Uh, Richard Enos, uh, Linda Flower, you know, as professors, and I, I was introduced to, to rhetoric and to you know, the sort of the, you know, the cognitive uh, perspective and, and composition. And um, I mean, it was valuable for me. It was, it was in some ways lonely. I was the only black student in any of the graduate programs at that point. It also taught me what I didn't want to do. I realized I was very much interested in. Uh, sort of the, the social aspect of, of, of the teaching of writing. And that was, at that time, that was not what they were, were doing. I mean, one of the things that was interesting there was that people in the, I think the PhD program were taking uh, computer language as a, as a language, like you know, Fortran or, or basic. Um, and they were very much tied to, um, I mean, you know, Carnegie Mellon is a really, they have this amazing, um, drama program, but it's an engineering school. Um, and so that, you know, 
was not necessarily what I wanted to do, but I met some really wonderful people there and had, um, I mean, my, it had a wonderful introduction to the history of rhetoric. So how did you figure out, because you mentioned the flower who we may have read for your class. You may have read that for my class. May have read that for our class. Um, But you mentioned she was doing very different work when you were there. Right. So how did you get exposed to what you ended up becoming and doing? Was that at Carnegie Mellon at all? Um, You know, and I took a linguistics class at at Carnegie Mellon, but I think some of that had to do with the, my, my training at Spelman and, and my, my interest in looking at composition as a way to think about why are black students you know, characterized by this deficit narrative? And what do I, what, what will studying composition do to help me understand that and try to fight back against that. And I think while you know Carnegie Mellon is you know is, is a, a really strong program, there weren't people there who were doing that kind of work. Um, I don't know that I could have done that kind of work then. I mean uh, the work that uh, Linda Flowers started was doing in terms of literacy study that came later that came long after I had left. So um, interestingly enough, I had been accepted at uh, UIC, University of Illinois at Chicago, at the, the same year I got accepted at Carnegie Mellon. It happened later and I had already committed to going to Carnegie Mellon. And so I went, I went and did the master's degree. And I thought I was going to take a year off because I had gone straight through, right? I was going to take a year off. But I, you know, I out of the blue, I get this... Um, call from UIC saying, you know, we have we still have this fellowship that we had offered you last year. If you're still interested and you want to, you know, all you have to do is just fill out the application thing again. We got your letters and I'm like, okay, what else am I going to do? <laughs> I guess maybe I don't need to take a year off. And so I just updated my application and 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 moved to Chicago. Um, and And it was interesting because it was I mean, I had lived in Atlanta, but I lived on campus the entire time I was in Atlanta. Say for one semester, I was an exchange student at Smith College in Massachusetts. Um, But then I thought, okay, so I moved to Chicago, literally with no place to live. I I moved into a hotel for a week until I found an apartment. Um, What was really helpful for me is I had a couple of friends from undergrad, you know, friends from Spelman and Morehouse who, who were from Chicago, who after graduation had moved back. So like one picked me up and, and helped me move into my little tiny studio apartment when I, after I found it. And my mother had a, 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 a childhood friend who picked me up at the airport when I arrived and took me to the hotel. So you know, I had a couple of connections, but what was really good for me about that program um, was that the same year that I came, Marcia Farr came, who eventually became my dissertation advisor, my mentor there, sociolinguist uh, with a focus on writing. And that was sort of, that was what I was looking for. And so that program was growing um, and had really an opportunity for me to do a deep dive into 
the teaching of writing into uh, the way that sociolinguistics speaks to composition and introduced me, Marcia introduced me to literacy studies as a field, which of course became the, my, my area. Awesome. I don't want to undersell the transition of going from the HBCU that Spellman is mm-hmm. to going, and I mean, you write about being in a black church and going the only black graduate student yeah. at Carnegie Mellon. So if you could talk a little bit more about how I'm assuming transformative that part of the experience was. Yeah, it was, well, I will say this. Being at Spelman grounded me and gave me, um, I think, a kind of strength to be to really negotiate being the only black student. I I also had um, it's so interesting. My uh, my aunt by marriage, my uncle's wife, had relatives in that area who literally would invite me to come to dinner, and they lived in North Purcell. And it was this black community. And it was so interesting because it was, it, the, the elevation was high. So you go and you look over, it was just like this black world, which was, which was nice and, and, and really uh, comforting when I needed that. But I, it was different. You know, I, I tell people, I, when I wanted to see somebody, or talk to somebody, uh, black in in the department, I would go in the bathroom and talk to one of the housekeepers who was cleaning because that was the only black person there. I but I did meet uh, a couple of black students who were in other programs, and they were literally like walking down the street, crossing the street. I met a I met a black student there, or uh, one and who I, we became friends. And then one day I was sitting fairly early on when I was there. I guess maybe even the first week I was. Uh, sitting on the bench in, in the building that the English department's in. I was on a different floor. And this young black woman comes up and, and asks me a question about where something is. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm sorry. He said, oh, you look like you know where everything is. And we just start chatting. And she was a freshman. And we got to be friends. And the irony is that her older sister was in law school at Berkeley with a really good friend of mine. It was just by coincidence. And so when I ran away from school, and I did run away from school once at, at Carnegie Mellon, and I, and I went out to, to Berkeley, um, and I stayed with uh, my friend's girlfriend, right, um, the, the woman he was dating. And we went, and, and, that's, and so I met her sister. It's like, oh, you're the person, she, you know, she's talking about. And I thought, this is like a really small world. So I had a couple of friends and like I had an apartment. She was living in the dorm and, and she was actually a drama student and, and, and she's an actress. She's actually a, an actress that's done Broadway and done, you know, been in movies. But um, having that, being able to have those conversations with people who are in different departments, who were in a different part of the university, was really important for me, but it was it was really really different. It took me back a little bit to, into when I was in junior high and high school, where uh, my schools were not um, ninety nine percent white. They were they were they were predominantly white, but they were integrated 
I grew up in a Black neighborhood. I had Black friends who were in my school, but in some of my classes, I was the only Black student. Yeah. Um, wow. And there was like I had that. Um, I actually, when I was in high school, decided not to take a couple of uh, honors classes because I wanted to be in classes that were much more diverse. And the honors classes were not nearly as diverse as I, as I thought they should have been. So, so yes, there was that negotiation of that space. But when I got to UIC, um, there were people of color in the graduate program. I mean, my office mate was another black woman. Um, and I tell people, I was in graduate school with, with Ralph Centron and Juan Guerra and Jabari Mahiri. And, and so I had, uh, there was, a, you know, it, it was a much more diverse program. Could have been more diverse, but it was much more diverse than, than when I was at Carnegie Mellon. Let's talk about your time at UIC now, because yeah. that feels pretty prevalent. And that's like every time you're sharing a story with me, there's, it's star-studded all the time. All the time. So, no, they 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 did okay for themselves, didn't they? <laughs> These are some careers we're talking about. Yeah. Talk to me about UIC. Talk to me about whatever you want to pick up from there. Um, but I'm really interested in how your project came to be, and as someone in coursework, the relationship your courses had to what your project became. So I already mentioned Marcia Farr. Um, so I took classes from her and she, and she introduced all of us, I think, to literacy studies and to new literacy studies. And really at that point, she introduced us to ethnography of literacy. That was the key moment. Um, and she, we read Ways with Words by Shirley Bryce Heath. And I was reading that book in, in Marcia's class and I thought, uh, this area is really familiar. This is this is this is where I grew up. This is where my family grew up, and I, I know these places. I know this area, and even though she called them by different names, I'm sitting there going, "That's Rock Hill, South Carolina. That's no, you know, I know these spaces." Um, what it did, what that did was, I think, give me permission to really do the kind of literacy scholarship that I wanted to do, which was to um, examine the, the literacy communities that I grew up in, or and when I, and not literally that I grew up in, but that were part of my um, life, whether it was in Chicago or in um, the rural South Carolina town where my relatives grew up and where I was born or in Charlotte where I, where I grew up or but in those black spaces and I and I I thought wow this is part of my life I I got all the references I knew what raising him was because that's what that's what we did in the church I grew up in and um I knew about the 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 mills you know the factories the mills because that's where my relatives worked but I knew also that um when they first started, most of my relatives could not get the production jobs because they were black, right? Many of them were doing the uh, maintenance jobs. And so, and I knew about the transition. So I knew about the mill towns and all that because I, you know, I'd gone through them. And um, so it was really eye-opening. 
for me and some and somewhat freeing actually my 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 um interest in the way that people read and write and use literacies outside of school, which is something that was sort of there, but I didn't quite know what I was going to do with it. It just opened up in those classes. Um, and I also you know, got to do graduate WPA work with the first year writing program, first with John Mellon and then with David Jolly, who was the director of composition then. So um, I had opportunities there. And I loved Chicago. It's cold as I'll get out, and I didn't like winters there, but I loved being in Chicago. And, and it was a different, um, really a different world for me than Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta is a black, a black city and a black mayor. And black, you know, it was a, Chicago is very different. And so and it was important for me to have that kind of uh, um, experience. And I'd also already had the experience of, of being at an HBCU, a Black women's HBCU, which is vastly important to me. Because I was, and people, a lot of people may not think about this now, but I can tell you, I was incredibly shy. I was so extroverted when I was at Spelman. And, and pretty much when I was at UIC as well, I usually didn't say anything. I had to make myself say something in class. You know? um, I would go talk to a professor in their office, but I didn't, didn't, didn't say much. So, um, so it, was a, it was a growing process when I became a WPA to really take on that kind of leadership role. I would love to talk more about your WPA work, but I also wanna talk more about you going out into the community. Um, so, I guess a good version of that question is where do you see those intertwining and what about each of those experiences did you then take with you to the Ohio State University? The, um, the WPA work and the research. I would probably say at the time that I was doing them, I didn't know that they were, um, I didn't see them as being connected. I thought them as, as different. Um, the WPA work was, was really important for me in terms of really starting to ask questions about what is it that we do when we design uh, first year writing programs? And, and there, with the, the connection though that became clear to me later is that the curriculum, you know, what are we doing in the curriculum that honors the literacies that students bring into their first year writing courses? You know, so that became clearer as I really was got into my research on the literacy in African-American churches, because I started to, to think about, and I was reading more, I mean, and again, reading in literacy studies, what, um, how are we making connections between um, people's literate lives and, and not saying, oh, this is, you know, we talk about home home literacies and community literacies and school literacies, what's the relationship between them? How can we, uh, those of us who are compositionists, and I, I see myself as a, as a compositionist, really start to understand what and make and, and build on what students bring into the classroom and that the, the lines to me should be blurry, you know, that line between whatever it is, the out of school literacies and in school literacy should be 
a little bit blurrier than, than they are. So it, you know, that's when I started to see those connections. When I first started, it was like, it wasn't as clear. Right? Uh, because I can tell you that as an undergraduate, and, and this is probably true of a lot of HBCUs. You know, if you think about what, what, how HBCUs grew, they grew because, you know, black folks weren't allowed to go to, especially land grant, um, state institutions, state schools. A lot of English departments felt like they wanted to prove that in, H, in HBCUs that the, uh, that the students who graduate could do the standardized English, right? As well as anybody from, from the schools they, they were not allowed to get into. Yeah. And so it was very traditional, in some ways conservative. But when I was, when I was in graduate school and starting to think about and, and, getting, and really starting to design my research uh, agenda. That's how I began to understand um, the kinds of literacies and sophisticated uses of literacy that are that really just are so plentiful in communities of, of, of color. That's beautiful. Really? So how, when did you know what you wanted your dissertation project to look like? It's so interesting. It's a, probably a little bit in the introduction to that, the, the book on literacy in African-American churches where I, I knew I was doing, gonna be doing uh, research on literacy in African-American community context. That was very clear to me at that, that I, I'm very clear that my, I have an agenda and that agenda is to make visible the literacy practices in African-American community context. I didn't really know what community context is, you know, for the dissertation research. But I, I tell people literally, I'm sitting in, you know, sitting in church one, one Sunday morning and, and I realize that I am not paying attention necessarily to what the minister is saying, but I am paying attention to how the minister is saying and, and the interaction between the minister and the people in the, you know, the congregation and this kind of the way the tech, the literate text is evolving and the role of literacy and all that. I thought, this is so interesting. Ding, 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 right? And so that's, that's kind of how it happened. Um, I also think, you know, I realized, and, and a lot of people thought that my work was gonna be focused on literacy in the black church like that was going to be the long term, but it that was one of the examples. That was one of the, the one of the sites, one of the community sites. I was really interested in uh, literacy in African American community context writ large. If that wasn't the site, what do you think the site would have been? I'm just curious to mess with you now. Well, I the other thing I was interested in at some point was I was actually thinking about how do sports teams use literacy in those contexts? I mean, and that, that was probably more after the dissertation because I was, when I went, when I first year at Ohio State, I think one of my uh, senior colleagues was invited to be like a guest coach for girls for the women's basketball. 
and said, do you want to go? Because he knew I liked, I liked uh, sports. Can't play anything, but I, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Right? And so we got to go into the locker room with the, to the, for before the game. At halftime, you know, we sat behind the bench where you cannot see anything. It's these tall people standing up in front of you. And after the game. And I was, I was fascinated by the way literacy was working in, in, in the discussions, in, in their, the game plan. And it, it, it pre-game and in the revision of that plan during halftime. You know, I was just fascinated by um, the way that, that they use visuals, the way they, they drew up plays and talked about them and wrote about them on it. And I thought, this is really just amazing. And what was fascinating to me about it, um, particularly, was, again, we have all these deficit narratives, and colleges are, are notorious for this, especially predominantly white institutions, about these deficit narratives about uh, people of color and athletes of color. And I'm like, but if you have these athletes who can sit here and process this information, and then go back out and then demonstrate that they process this information, what are we talking about in terms of deficit? They are doing something that is, is incredibly complex and intellectually challenging. So it means that we're not doing something right in classrooms if we're not tapping into that. So that was one of the things I was interested in. But um, really, I kept coming back to African-American community con context. And that's how I ended up also then with the phenomenal women work because I want to look at also black women in these community contexts and the way that they use literacy. You queued me up too perfectly to ask you about this phenomenal women project. So I'm going to ask mm -hmm. um, what's the, tell me more about it. So it's kind of been a t over 10 year uh, relationship. I don't really now describe it as a research project so much as I describe it as a relationship. Um, there was like a big gap when I um, you know, got tenure and then later the book came out on uh, literacy in African-American churches and uh, I had done that work, but then I sort of had the administration gap. Right? I, I took over directing first the writing center at Ohio State and then um, the Center for the Study of Teaching and Writing. And so that was like a 10 year process. Um, but when I started thinking about where, well, you know, let me regroup and let's take back up my research agenda on literacy in African-American community context, I, I had to think about what, what are you going to do? And I was, um, one of my former graduate assistants, was a Black woman um, who got a, a master's degree at Ohio State, not in retcon, but in literature, but she worked for me. And she said, oh, I saw, I saw her somewhere. She said, what are you working on? I said, well, this is what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about looking at, um, I'm really interested in how Black women um, in certain African-American community sites are using literacy. How is literacy function? How do they define it? And she said to me, you should study our club. I'm like, what club? And I didn't think about it again for a while. You know, and I write about this somewhere. And then like six months later, I sat down, I thought, 
what did she just, what did she say to me six months ago? And I really started thinking about this and haven't, and then I went back and had conversations with her. Turns out that, you know, she had invited me a few years before to speak at, uh, for the African-American reading chain, you know, NCTE reading chain uh, at Columbus State's community college. She's, she's a um, faculty member at the community college. And I spoke and there were a group of black women there I did not know at that time that that was her club. I just did not put that together. But we started talking. It was just fascinating. So it literally was a member of the community inviting me in. And I designed the project after talking to her. And she said, no, our club is having our last meeting of the year. It's the picnic in June. Come and meet the president and I went and did that and probably about six months later maybe not even that long yeah or close to it I went through you know I had gone through the IRB process and I met with the club I went to one of their meetings and told them what I wanted to do and what I was interested in and they and then I left I, I left I gave you know I left all the because uh, you, know, you have the IRB script, I left the uh, consent, uh, consent forms. And I think before I got to my car, they had agreed they wanted to be part of this project. And I think a lot of that was because they thought, oh, we're going to help this little child out. <laughs> you know, let's help the child out. You know, it's like your, your mother's. Uh, and I have been in a relationship with them since then. That is really amazing. Would you have done it had you not been invited? No. No, probably not. I may have done a different site, uh, but the invitation was really uh, important. And as you can tell, I said, you know, six months went by before I really thought about the importance of the invitation, which is, you know, for me, and we, you know, you, you're in class with me, I think about how do people get, how do people have entree into particular community spaces? And, you know, when you're teaching a community-engaged writing course, sometimes you actually have to go and, and ask if you can come. You know, you have to ask, would you, can we be here? It is so interesting when you're invited. But the invitation came from one person. Then it had to be, then I, we, then I had to negotiate, well, there's a whole club. Do you all want me here? But, the, I, you know, I, the, that invitation came from a person who was a co-founder of the club. Her mother actually was the founder and then her aunt and her grandmother. And so there was this family part of it, but they were also their friends. And so I no, I don't think so. I think it was really important. And, and what's important now, and I think I will talk a little bit about this you know, when I give the lecture, is that they continue to invite me to, to, to events. They continue to keep me as part of, of uh, their larger group, even though I'm not technically not a member of the club, I can invite it to, to things. I don't get to go to everything. I go to something. I, I make sure I go to something at least once a year, probably twice a year. Um, the pandemic changed a lot of that. So I've done some things on um, through Zoom that they've had, but I try to make sure I go to something that, that uh, when they invite me. I'm really fascinated by 
you describing it as a relationship and you also being very clear that you're not a part of the club but for how long this has gone on I guess my biggest curiosity here is how does this turn out ideally for you right is this a happy accident of people you got to spend yeah a decade learning from or a decade plus yeah. learning from I mean or is there I something think you need you know, at we'll some point I will go back to the book I've actually started going, going back to the book and I think they're very excited about somebody writing a book about them and one of the a lot of things that happened you know that I won't go into about me stopping on the book and pausing um for some for so long but you know, I, you know, I started out with them talk, talking about them as research participants. And then, and I think in some, on some level, I know that's still the case that I'm, that they are, but it, for me, it's clearly, as I, I've been rethinking this recently, that it's a, it's a research relationship. It's a relationship. It is building. They don't keep inviting me just because I'm doing research. I think they keep inviting me because I have a relationship with with members of the club, you know? Uh, and I think I established that relationship while I was, while I've been collecting data, when I was, when I've been doing interviews and uh, the individual interviews, I try to do them in a, in a way that acknowledges that, you know, they're the experts and I am there at uh, their will because they can say at any minute, we're done with you, right? So I think, Thinking about it in terms of relationship is the thing that's been happening as I've come back to it, that that's really the way I'm beginning to understand it. I mean, it's a process. It's it's definitely a process. So I want to ask you about another work that you have currently in progress, which is everyone's an author. Another edition. Another edition. So... Everyone knows Dr. Moss will be speaking to the graduate students here at the University of Louisville about the publication of this textbook. So my question is, tell me everything. How did this start? How has it gone so far? I won't um, tell you everything. What have you learned about this process of textbook writing? It's hard. And it's, it's, it's hard and it's time consuming. It's, um, I should Try to figure out if I'm in the the, the the sunlight. It's okay. I tell people I went into, first. Let me say we're working on the fourth edition right now. Um, which means I guess some people like it, right? Um, I went into this kicking and screaming. I was not interested. I don't even know how to explain it. And it's not that I wasn't. Uh, one of the co-authors and I were talking about doing a textbook before, but but in the end, I was like, I don't know, it's not for me. And at the time that I was asked to participate, you know, my department didn't have high regard for textbook writing, textbook publication. It wasn't considered scholarly. Uh, And it was, they were pretty dismissive. Things have changed over the last, uh, 
how long, how long have I been involved? 10, 12 years over all these editions. But it's, um, I've had no experience writing to first year students. I had experience teaching first year students, which is, you know, helps, but I didn't have that experience. And it was, it was difficult. It was a, it was a challenge. I mean, I think the first uh, thing I wrote, the, the draft of one of the chapters, uh, people said, oh, this is the editor um, and my co-author said, this is very, very interesting. This is very good, but this is a little, not the tone we're trying to strike. What I would tell people about textbook writing is that you're writing to, especially uh, a rhetoric, a first-year writing textbook, you're writing to two audiences. You're writing to the students who are going to use it, but you're also writing to their teachers. Right? And you have to write to both those audiences at the same time because it's the teachers and the directors of composition who are making the, 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 the decisions about what, how that book is going to fit their writing program. So I think that that's part of it, but you also trying to figure out how to use all the scholarly knowledge and pedagogical knowledge you have in a way that connects to a range of people. So that's another challenge. And I think the recent, more recent challenge is making sure that our book speaks to concerns about anti-racist uh, writing pedagogy, that we speak, to, you know, that we raise questions, that, we, that we're not afraid to um, raise certain issues with students, but also keep in mind that we're not, you know, people will probably say our book has a little bit more liberal bit, but I, you know, my, you know, I always say, you know, we want Republicans to buy the book too. Um, it's, um, I want, I, what I say in, in people on my co-authorship, my co-authors and editors re remind me that I've, I keep saying this. I want everybody to see themselves in the book. I don't know if it's possible, but I do. I want everybody to see themselves at some point in this book. That there is a reading or an exercise that's, that they will connect to in some way. Um, but it is, it is a challenge. And here's the thing I can tell you about textbook um, process. It's like, hurry up and get this done and then you wait. Like you get these deadlines and, 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 and it's fast. And I keep thinking, but hey, you know, I've got all these other things I'm doing. No. And if the book is successful, uh, and for textbook companies, that's how many, how many you know, books are you selling, right? How many adoptions are you getting? But if it's successful, then you are rethinking it every two years because a new edition is probably going to come out every three years. How is that edition process, that constant revision and having to think about revision process, and how has that maybe change the way that you think about the rest of your work? Well, so the revision process is interesting because it forces you to pay attention to what's going on around you all the time. Because when we do the revisions, when we're looking at every chapter and, and textbooks go under a significant amount of review. Like we will have 
you may have 25 reviewers for it uh, to review the, the, the previous edition. Um, so of people who are using the book, right? And then you might have reviewers who are reviewing just specific sections of the book or things that they would like to see. And they tell you what readings they use, what readings they don't use, which chapters they, they teach, chapters they don't teach. And of course, now you, people are customizing. So what are people pulling out in the when they customize for their program? So there's a, you know, so there's a, like a lot of balls in the air. So I, I think um, the other part of that is then you're looking at, well, how do we need to change our readings? What do we need to update? What readings are dated? Do we want to change this, this exercise? How do we want to speak about language here? Do we, what, what new chapters are we adding? How are those new chapters going to work? So like in this fourth edition, you know, we have a new chapter and I'll talk a little bit about this when I do the, the pro-sim. Um, we're adding a chapter on, um, on language and language power and that we were, Gonna call it language power and privilege. I think our editor changed it to language power and rhetoric. But you know, then that chapter gets sent out for review. Or like an early draft gets got sent out for review. And so then you get 10 different people, 10 different schools reviewing that who, whose programs are have maybe different uh a, a, you know a different framework. And so you get that feedback from those 10 different people plus you know, 10 or 15 other people who are looking at it. So it's a con that's a constant negotiation. And so it is, it, yeah, it is, a, it is a, a challenge. I mean, so when you do your, what people consider traditional scholarly work, you know, it's going out for review. I and mean, you have, you may, you will have people who look at it before you submit it to a journal or for, or a book before you submit it, but they're going to send it to two or three reviewers. They're not going to send it to 20, 25. And so the other challenge with the textbook is getting people to understand that it is that writing to students, first year students, is as intellectually challenging as writing to um, other scholars in the field. Because I think that the, the practice that meant, oh, that it's not. In some ways, probably more challenging. That's really cool to me because I think that as a graduate student, we keep trying to think about how to sound scholarly, which means writing to other scholars in the field. And I don't think we think critically enough about how we're writing to our students right. and our students as a scholarly audience and an audience that we need to understand and use different sorts of rhetorical techniques. So that's really fascinating. Um, speaking of students, you need to talk to us a little bit about your work with bread loaf. Um, and we can use that as a little bit of a tie-in to your time here. So talk to us about how you got, in got involved with bread loaf, what bread loaf is um yeah okay so the Brettloff school of english is the middlebury college Brettloff school of english and it's the graduate program in english i think a lot of people have heard of the Brettloff writers conference 
which is the, you know, the two-week creative writing um, conference that happens after we, like literally right after we leave. The Brett Love School of English is a summer graduate program through Middlebury College, an MA, MA program, an MLIT. And when it first started, I think people would probably describe it as a graduate program that most of the students who were teachers at private schools, at prep schools. Yeah. And then and Janet Emick taught in that program, but um, and said we need, you know, we need to start a writing program. Dixie Gazwami is really the person who grew the writing component of the program. Dixie was at Clemson um, uh, as a faculty member for a long time, long since retired. I think Dixie is maybe ninety-one now. I was emailing with her last week, but she directed the program and really built the program. And what she, she and the then director Jamatics actually wrote grants to fund public school teachers from rural uh, areas to come and do graduate study in English. And part of that, um, the program is, so they were fellows, Those they, they got these fellowships, but they also then started working across difference. Like they started doing what exchanges. So they would design a project that would emerge really out of their coursework. And they would have their students working with students from another school. So um, Dixie ran the program for uh, the, was the director of the teacher network, which was the Brett Love Rural Teacher Network. And then eventually they got grants that brought in urban teachers from public schools. And so it really then became the Brett Love Teacher Network since it was urban and rural and, and some suburban. Um, I started teaching there. I mean, Andrea Luster was my colleague at Ohio State. Jackie Worcester was my colleague at Ohio State. Both of them were teaching there. Um, and I think one, maybe one of the summers, I think Shirley Bryce Heath had been teaching there and was not gonna be coming. They needed someone to replace. And Dixie Gaswami had been one of my tenure reviewers. They said, well, what about? And, and so they, I, I was asked if I would be interested. And I think I started teaching there in 1999. So I taught there for a while and then they opened a campus. Well, I, I went to Juno. They had a Juno campus and I did taught there for three weeks in the summer. So they had a, a campus in Juno. The major campus is in Vermont, I should say that, right? Up on the Breadloaf Mountain. And they have uh, Oxford and uh, Lincoln College at Oxford. And so it's a, had been very much a literature program, but there is a there are theater courses. There's actually a, a theater. They do plays in in Vermont. The many of the, the faculty and actors who are affiliated with Trinity Rep in Providence, Rhode Island, and with Brown University are there in the summer, and they do plays. I mean, so you get to see live theaters. It's quite amazing, and they have these writing courses. So I taught in those courses. I taught in, the, in Vermont, I taught in the Juno campus when it was open and I taught, they had a campus in Asheville for a while I taught there. And, and I actually had really stepped out of, out of it once the Asheville campus closed and um, Dixie was ready to move toward retirement. And I was asked to take over as the director of the Brett Love Teacher Network. And so what we do is our teachers are what we, I describe as sort of transformative educational experiences for the teachers and for their students. I mean, these collaborations between teachers in different sites are really 
provide students with the opportunity to write to real audiences around issues. Uh, some of the liter you know, literature, they might all be reading Othello or they might be working on writing about place and they're reading, or the, some groups might be doing art that other people are writing about. And so we have, um, and we have sites in Kentucky. Yeah, we, there's a Kentucky Breadloaf Teacher Network. Um, we have teachers uh, in Louisville, particularly at Fern Creek. We have um, teachers in uh, East Jessamine and West Jessamine, in um, Nicholasville, that I think, um, Bullitt County, I mean, there places I haven't been, but we have, so we have, we have uh, teachers who've gotten their master's degrees or are currently working on master's degrees who are in different parts of Kentucky. In the last few years, we have also started a Brentlove teacher, uh, so youth group we call the BLT and Next Gen. And the, um, there are seven sites and Louisville is one of those sites. And so some of the students in your class, some of the, uh, are, the graduate students are working with uh, some of the, the Next Gen site. They're doing the family literacy kits. So uh, it's for me uh, an opportunity to really uh, work with people who are using literacy to advocate for social change, uh, youth and their teachers. And so what, what does that look like? You have a, you know, you have a teacher in uh, rural Maine who's doing a poetry exchange with a teacher in Rhode Island and a teacher in Chicago. In the past, we've had a teacher who was teaching in Kenya, who was one of our BLTN fellows in Nairobi, who was doing an exchange with a teacher who was teaching in a rural village in Alaska. Or now we have a teacher in rural South Carolina who's, who was just here with her, two of her students doing work, collaborating with students in Louisville. Well, that's sort of a quick uh, exchange, but the, the teachers are doing, getting master's degrees and they're going in the summer. That is really fascinating. And now I am kicking myself for not choosing that option for my class. Yeah, but, but I, you know, I made a split decision over a week or two that you, 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 you're doing all right. You, you know, <laughs> like, people already have organizations that they're working with. They already have community partners they're working with. So you have done work with Red Loaf here in Louisville. Yes. And You've been here for three months now. You got yes. one more month. So now I have to ask a frustrating question. How does it compare to life in Columbus? Oh, it's different. You know, it's just, it's just I don't know that I would compare them I, it's because they're such different cities. I mean, the, the, the thing that's similar is they're both big, relatively big cities. Um, but I think they just have a different, I think, you know, and I haven't been around Louisville a lot. I haven't gotten to do a lot of things in Louisville because of the pandemic. But like the community I live in is, is different. I, mean, I live in Germantown in, in uh, Louisville and the, the housing is different. You know, the and it's a it's a neighborhood that's sort of a split neighborhood where it's clearly it was a working class um, German neighborhood with what they call shotgun houses, which are a little bit different shotgun houses than the ones I grew up in that I saw in the South uh, that I'm familiar with. Uh, but clearly part of half the community is, you know, 
it now is, it's fairly middle class because you can see that people have been buying and renovating the, those houses near these cute little bungalows. And But it's still got a little bit of that, of the vibe of the working class. You know, so I think that's interesting. I, so I haven't really been in a lot of other neighborhoods. I've driven through the highlands and those big old houses I've walked through there. Those are, are nice. And so it, it has what everybody else has, which is a trend, you know, a trendy area. Columbus has this trendy area and um, the waterfront is, is I've been once, I mean, I have been to Louisville a few times. I actually had never gotten to the waterfront because I've always been here for a conference for meetings. So I only go to the place where I'm having a meeting and then leave. Um, so, you know, and Columbus has this little river or another waterfront, but it's just, it just has a very different vibe. I think Columbus is probably, I think Louisville probably is a, a more Southern, right? A more Southern vibe. And Columbus, you know, a little bit further North is um, a little more Midwestern, even though I think I always say it's more Mid-Eastern, but it's a little more of a, of a Midwestern vibe and a slow, it's a relatively slow pace. And um, Ohio State is like the big, the you know, the big, big thing there, but it's also kind of corporate because it's a, headquarters for nationwide insurance and you know wendy's international the, the, the hamburger people and you know so they have all those corporate corporate places as well okay you have given us so much to think about so my final question for you what are you spending the rest of the day doing i'm going to read for class and then tonight I'm going to turn on my laptop and watch a little bit of the women's final four and try to grade, try to grade some papers. Always working. That's Always true. working. That's true. But the sun, you can see, but the sun is on my face. The sun has come out. So maybe I take a walk around the block before I get started. Please do. Thank you so much for all of your time, Dr. Moss. Have You're a welcome. great day. It was a pleasure well, talking you. to you. Thank you. Thank you for your really engaging um, questions. I should ask you, what are you going to do the rest of the day? You know what I'm going to do the rest of the day. I'm going to probably read for class and go back to the writing center because that's where I should be right now. Okay. Well, enjoy your weekend. Michael's interview with Dr. Moss. Of course, we know the importance of her work. She's a Four C's exemplar. But I want to thank her for sitting down for an interview with Michael, for taking a chance on this big rhetorical podcast. Thank you, Dr. Moss. And thank you, Michael, for your hard work and collaborative spirit this year. The fellowship program is a success then, and we will be seeking a 2022-2023 fellow. Look for the call later this year. We can't continue to do this work without your help. Please visit our website where you will find a place to donate to our fellowship, and please donate if you can. 
I want to leave you all with a reminder that the Big Rhetorical Podcast will be recording live from downtown Greenville, North Carolina, as a part of the Computers and Writing Conference 2022 Night Out. I'm not sure if I'll be set up at the bar or at the hatchet-throwing venue, and as I write this sentence and read it aloud, I realize either sounds pretty awesome. Either way, I hope to see you there. I'll be back next week with another new interview on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Paliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Stefa Helix, and Admiral Bob. <laughs>